0: Morning. This morning I'm going to ask you to think a little bit. I'm sorry. It means you've got to be awake. It means you've got to be awake. This won't be a traditional Christmas message. We're not going to hear about angels or shepherds or mangers or anything like that When we, where we kind of remember the Christmas story per se. So to warm up your thinker this morning, we're going to have a little quiz. Name that Christmas carol. Match these words with the right Christmas carol here this morning. First one is 5 p.m. to 6 a.m. without noise. Silent night. Good. Okay. Next one is minuscule hamlet in the Far East. There you go. Okay. There, everybody's waking up now. It's good to see. The next one is in the vestibule. Deck the halls. All right. How about this one? Listen, aerial spirits vocalizing musical harmonies. Hark, the herald angels sing. Okay. How about this one? Monarchial trio. We three kings. kings. Okay. How about this one? Assemble, everyone who believes and obeys. Oh, come all ye faithful. Okay, you guys are getting it. I can see your thinkers are warming up. I'm glad to see that. Okay? How about this next one? Hallowed Post Meridian. Oh, holy night. You get it? Post Meridian, PM, night. Okay, maybe your thinkers aren't as warmed up as I thought they were. Okay, and here's one, just throw in a little secular, less spiritual one Homo sapien of crystallized vapor. Frosty the Snowman. (laughs) I don't know what it says that Tom was the one who got that, but anyway. (laughs) Okay, now that your brain's warmed up a little bit, we can begin this morning. When you think of someone who's condescending towards you, you would typically think of someone who looks down on you, someone who thinks they're better than you are or maybe smarter than you are, and worse yet, they treat you that way. A person who's kind of condescending towards you usually makes you feel at least a little bit small and unimportant. And generally, that kind of attitude annoys us or aggravates us, doesn't it? None of us has the right to make somebody else feel small and unimportant. But at Christmas time, we remember the one who, by condescending rather than making us feel small, declared that we are precious and valuable to him. This is the one who had every right to look down on us because he truly is so much bigger, so much smarter, so much better, so much holier than we are. This morning, we're looking at what it means in scripture related to the incarnation when it says that Jesus emptied himself, or as some versions say, he made himself of no reputation. There's a story, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a good story and we'll uh, leave it at that of a man named Sam. He had kind of wild hair, ripped jeans, t-shirt, generally didn't wear shoes and this was literally his wardrobe during most of his four years in college. He's an intelligent guy, he's a little bit strange, but he's very very bright. He became a Christian while he was attending college and across the street from the campus there's a very buttoned down, kind of well-dressed, very conservative church. And this church wanted to develop a ministry to the college students, but they're not quite sure how to go about it. So one day, Sam decides to go there. He walks in. He doesn't have shoes, as is his pattern. He's wearing his jeans and his T-shirt and his wild hair. And the service has already started. So Sam goes down the aisle, and he's looking for a seat, but the church is completely packed. There's no seats to be had. By now, people are looking a little bit uncomfortable. But no one says anything. And Sam is closer to the pulpit. And when he realizes that there's no seats available, he just plops himself on the floor right in front of the front row and just decides to sit right there on the carpet. Now, this might be normal, perfectly acceptable behavior at his college fellowship group. They probably do that all the time. But at this church, this kind of thing doesn't usually happen. And so now the people are really tense and that you can cut the tension in the air. With a knife, And about this time, the minister, who's in the pulpit getting ready to preach, he realizes that from way in the back of the church, there's a deacon who's slowly making his way up toward the front, toward Sam. Now, the deacon is in his 80s. He has silver gray hair. He wears a three-piece suit. He's a godly man. He's very dignified. He's very elegant, very courtly. He walks with a cane. So he's making his way down to the front. And he starts walking toward the young man, and everyone in the church is thinking, well, you know, you really can't blame this deacon for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age to understand this college kid sitting on the floor? It takes a long time for the deacon to reach the young man, and the church is completely silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes are focused on him, and the minister can't even begin to preach until the deacon does what he has to do. And then they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor, and with great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Sam, and he worships with him so he won't feel alone. Everyone in the church chokes up with emotion. And so the minister kind of gains control of his own emotions, and he says, what I'm about to preach, you'll never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. God condescended to leave his throne in glory, become flesh in Christ Jesus, and live among us so we could see and so we could remember what God is like. Condescend, in our typical usage, is usually seen as one person looking down on another, and thus we see condescending as a negative thing. But the definition of condescend, it includes that meaning, but it includes more meanings than just this. Definition of condescend is to act graciously towards another or others regarded as being on a lower level. Of course, the second part of this is the one that we usually think of, to behave patronizingly. That's what we usually think of when we think of condescend, or to do something that one regards as below one's dignity. It's from the Latin word condescendere, which means to stoop or to descend. So God stooped to our level. In Jesus, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us. We see this reality in Scripture most clearly in what scholars believe is an early Christian hymn. It's known as the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ. Some of your Bibles might even have this particular passage of Scripture indented to set it apart as poetry from Paul's prose. You'll find this if you have your Bibles. You might want to turn there this morning because this is our primary text and we're going to spend quite a bit of time. Here this morning. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of the translations in your Bibles say, Have this attitude in yourselves. This idea at the beginning of this passage of Scripture is extremely important to help us understand the full context of these verses. This is admonition to emulate, to be like Jesus in our attitudes, in our minds. This is clearly the most important part of this passage. It says, think like this. And it's what Paul hopes the Philippians will understand here. And imitate. But in the midst of this encouragement to humility in ourselves, Paul also highlights some things that the early church clearly assumed about Christ, about who he was and is, about his nature, about his deity. We'll look at that here in a moment. Now, some stories seem just a little bit too good to be true. It's a real temptation when we hear stories that kind of highlight and emphasize something we believe in For us to repeat these stories, but this story I'm about to relate to you is one of those stories that makes a great sermon illustration, but the problem is that as it's been told by some before, maybe not here, but in many places, this story's not entirely true. But I'm going to tell you this story, the true as well as the untrue part of it, to illustrate this attitude we're looking at today, and that's the true part of the story, the attitude. There was a man named Leonard Dober. He was part of a missions-minded fellowship of Moravians in 1731. He had heard about the plight of the slaves in the Caribbean islands known as the West Indies. He had a strong sense of calling from God to be a missionary to these slaves. But he was told at first that no one could be a missionary in St. Thomas, West Indies without first becoming a slave himself. And here's where the truth of this story gets embellished. Now, the embellished story is the one that gets told the most because it seems the most convicting, the most compelling, the most powerful. The embellished version says that Leonard and a companion, David Nitchman, traveled to the West Indies and actually sold themselves into slavery, where they spent the rest of their lives working as slaves and preaching the gospel to their fellow slaves. Now, the true version of this story is really just as good Because the Bible tells us that the Lord looks on our heart and on our attitude. It's our willingness that God desires. Dober and Nitschman truly were willing to sell themselves into slavery. They had this in mind that this was actually what they were going to have to do when they actually left, began their journey through Europe toward the Caribbean with the clear intention of selling themselves into slavery. That's amazing enough all by itself. They were going to. They intended to. However, upon reaching Denmark on their way to the Caribbean, they learned that no white man was allowed to work as a slave in the West Indies. But they went anyway, and they established a mission there that existed for 50 years before any other church arrived on the scene, and this work eventually resulted in about 13,000 people coming to Christ. This story illustrates well what Paul told us of Jesus. The attitude that Jesus had that we're encouraged here to emulate. He emptied himself. And at Christmas time, when we ponder the amazing doctrine of the incarnation, the one that the Apostle John called the Word made flesh who dwelt among us, it's good for us to dig deep into this reality and ponder some biblical truth about what it meant and about what it didn't mean for Jesus to empty himself. Again, let me emphasize this again, and I'll emphasize it again before we're done. We have to consider the context. Let's take just a moment to look at what Paul was saying to the Philippians just before the Carmen Christi, the verses uh, 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2, the hymn to Christ. If we read just a few verses before the beginning of the chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we read this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, This admonition that Paul has, count, yourselves more, uh, count others more important than yourselves, Paul uses this hymn beginning in verse 5. It's kind of a sermon illustration right in the middle of his admonition. If we are to be like Christ, if we are to look not to our own interests but also to the interests of others, if we're to humbly count others as more significant than ourselves, one of the most important ways Paul tells us that we can do that is to follow in your attitudes Jesus' example of humility. All of the Carmen Christi is an illustration of what it looks like to act humbly, to give one's life in the service of others. So what does Paul say? In verse 5 he says, after what we just read, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or the NIV says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what an attitude it is. Paul expands on this idea a little bit here. Now, you and I have every reason to be humble. Now, we may have talents. We may have gifts. We may have some authority or power or position. We may have many things that others, maybe most others, don't have. But none of these things are things that we have because of anything in and of ourselves. Any talent we have is from God. Any gift we have is from God. Any authority or power we have is from God. Any position we have is from God. But think of this Jesus was God, He was God the Son even before the incarnation. That's what Paul's telling us here. Paul affirms this truth. It's understood. It's celebrated in this hymn. He refers to Jesus as being in the form of God. Now, form here is the Greek word morphe. In some of your translations, it's translated nature. And the word translated nature in verses six and seven is a crucial term in the passage. Now, This word, which is translated form in the King James, the New American Standard, and the English Standard versions, stresses the inner essence or reality of that with which it is associated. Christ Jesus, Paul said, is of the very essence, the morphe of God, and in his incarnation he embraced perfect humanity. His complete and absolute deity is here carefully stressed by the Apostle. The Savior's claim to deity infuriated the Jewish leaders and caused them to accuse him of blasphemy. So when we read that Jesus existed in the form of God, what Paul's telling us here is that Jesus always was God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Before he became flesh, Jesus was already God the Son in a glorified state with God the Father. The fact that Christ in his human form showed us God presupposes his being God at all times. He never claimed to be something without really being that in his essence. If he had, he would have been making a false claim. Before his incarnation, Jesus was in the form, the essence, the nature of God. After his incarnation, he was still in the form of God, the essence of God, the nature of God, despite the fact that in addition to that, he took on flesh, despite the fact that he condescended voluntarily of his own accord to become like us. Now, theologians call this the hypostatic union. It comes from the Greek word, which indicates the true nature or essence of a being. It means that Jesus was truly God from all eternity, through his life on earth, and after his resurrection and ascension. There was a mystical union of the two natures, fully God and fully man. It means he never gave up any part of his divinity to become a real human being. Think of it this way. When Dave Troutman takes on the role of a servant, and you'll see that around here. You'll see Dave picking up. Vacuum, moving tables, doing something like that. He's no less an elder while he's doing that. He's still an elder. He still has that position. He still has that authority. We'll take a closer look at this idea when we explore what it means when it says he emptied himself. So, though he retained true deity, Jesus also took upon himself the true essence of a servant. The word there is actually slave, it's the Greek. It's a form of the Greek word doulos. Now, in order to be a slave, he had to become a man and appear in the likeness of men. And to do this, he had to empty himself. He had to make himself nothing or make himself of no reputation. At the end of verse 6, we see another aspect of this. Some who have power or wealth or authority want to hang on to it at all costs. Witness, for example, the Arab dictators throughout the Middle East who are trying to hang on to their authority in their countries in the midst of revolutions that are seeking to remove them from power. Muammar Gaddafi tried to hang on to it until the day he was caught and killed. Now, we've seen this with people who have wealth or power throughout human history. People got to hang on to it. But here we have Jesus who didn't just have wealth or power or authority over a puny country, a vault full of gold, or millions of subjects. He was the king of kings. He was the lord of lords. He had everything because he created everything. Everything belongs to him. But he not only didn't see this as something he needed to hang on to, but he voluntarily emptied himself of these things. He could have remained on the throne at the right hand of the father Yes, we see it in this passage, that's where he ends up. But he emptied himself during this time on earth. He emptied himself of the proper recognition that he had with the Father as God, who is Spirit, and entered into the world of men, most of whom did not at all recognize him for who he was. The original language here indicates that humanity did not displace his deity in his personality. Rather, He took upon himself voluntarily, in addition to his pre-incarnate condition, something which veiled his deity. Proper recognition is called in the Greek doxa, glory or praise. In the form of man and servant, he lacked the recognition among men that he had with the Father. This voluntary humiliation of Christ began with the incarnation, what we celebrate during the Christmas season, and was carried all the way through to his crucifixion. What An amazing thought, that is, to ponder. If you want to think about something during this Christmas season, think about this. His proper, his rightful place was in glory. He was continually receiving praise and honor and glory from the angels in a glorified state that we can only begin to imagine. But he chose to lay that aside for 33 years to live among us, to suffer and die for us. He did not treat equality with God, his genuine, very real right to glory, as something he should hang on to. But he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took the form, the very real essence of a human slave. Now, Jim talked about this last week from Isaiah chapter 53. and verse. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It's an amazing thing. Think of the contrast of this reality of Jesus' existence while he was on earth with the glory that he had in heaven with God the Father before this. That brings us to verse 7. The phrase translated in some verses, which is the most literal translation, he emptied himself. Let's take a handful of uh, passages from various translations and take a look at how this is rendered. We see that in the King James and New King James, for example, it's translated he made himself of no reputation. The uh, English Standard and New International versions say he made himself nothing. The New American Standard has the most literal translation. It says he emptied himself. But it also has a footnote explaining what this means. He laid aside his privileges. And the New Living Translation says he gave up divine privileges. And a paraphrase, the message says he set aside the privileges of deity. So though the New American Standard is the most literal translation of the original language here, which does in fact mean he emptied himself, it's unfortunate what people have done with this phrase rather than take this amazing paradox as something that's clearly taught throughout the New Testament, fully God and fully man, and take this paradox and live with the mystery. Throughout church history, too many people have attempted to explain this phrase by teaching that Jesus somehow became less divine during the incarnation, or even that he was a created being and simply human and not God the Son. So let's clear that up here right away. The term emptied is always used by Paul in a metaphorical sense. For example, we see it used in Romans chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now here, the word void is the same word used for emptied in the Carmen Christi that we read in Philippians chapter 2. It's clear here that Paul is not talking about a literal emptying of faith or promise, but a metaphorical making empty. So it is here in Philippians chapter 2. Paul's not saying that Jesus ceased to be God, or in any other way stopped being equal with the Father, but that he voluntarily laid aside the privileges that were his. When Jesus walked this earth, people didn't see him as a glorious heavenly being. His glory was hidden. It was veiled. There's one exception, the transfiguration, where a chosen few saw him in his glory. But most of the rest of the time of Jesus' existence on earth, everybody looked at him as a normal, everyday guy. There was nothing exceptional about him in his outward appearance. Paul's not teaching us here that Jesus somehow became 50% God and 50% man, or even 75% God and 25% man, or the reverse of that percentage. His assumption is that the Philippians knew and believed that Jesus was all God and all man at the same time. As hard as that is for us to wrap our minds around, that's what Scripture teaches. Paul's simply illustrating the ultimate example here of humility. A 100% God who takes on the additional nature of human flesh and becomes 100% man without divesting himself of any divinity. But still, people have for centuries insisted on trying to undeify Jesus. Some of them may be well meaning, simply trying to understand better the incarnation and all the implications of this. Can we admit that this is a challenge to our finite minds? Anybody here want to admit that? I'll be the first to admit it. Can we admit that it's hard for us to fully understand how an all-knowing God can be said in Scripture to grow in wisdom while he's the man, Christ Jesus? Or he doesn't know the day or the hour of his own return to earth? To even try to explore these questions today would be a little bit of a rabbit trail that's a little bit unprofitable for us to venture down today. Maybe we'll do that some other time. But the pity here is that men in their zeal for rationalization often lost sight of the historic facts of faith because they were willing to surrender what they could not immediately rationalize. We don't really have time to mention all the heresies that have come from a wrong interpretation of this passage of Scripture. Unfortunately, even in our day, we see popular preachers and authors who have bought into this heresy again there's one popular preacher who embraces a doctrine that teaches that during his earthly ministry, Jesus operated only as a man and not as God. He claims that Christ laid aside his divinity. He writes, and I quote, Jesus performed miracles and wonders and signs as a man in right relationship to God and not as God. He writes elsewhere, he laid his divinity aside as he sought to fulfill the assignment Given to him by the Father. Now, I'm certain that this teacher would claim that he's not denying the divinity of Christ. But can you see how quotes like this do, in fact, deny the divinity of Christ, the deity of our Lord and Savior? This denial of Christ's deity during his earthly ministry is the same as some word of faith preacher's denial of Jesus' deity when he died on the cross. There are some preachers who teach that, that Jesus wasn't God when he died on the cross. They claim he lost his divinity and he suffered in hell as a man. Both denials are blatant heresy. A right understanding of deity has certain necessary definitions. The most basic is this, eternal non-contingent existence. Okay, let's talk through that here just a little bit. Non-contingent, means that God's eternal existence and all of his attributes are not contingent. That is, they don't depend on anyone or anything. God is self-existent. If God existed in eternal, eternity past before anything else existed, there's nothing outside of God that could have caused his existence. This means that God as God is not contingent, He's not dependent on anything outside of himself. This is what Scripture teaches. This relates to the false teaching we're looking at now in the false idea that when it says Jesus emptied himself, he somehow became un deity, or somewhat less than fully God. Then Jesus' deity is contingent. It's dependent. It goes away during the incarnation only to return later. Now, think about this. Something that comes and goes is not eternal. It's not non-contingent. It's dependent. If Jesus' divinity can be laid aside, it was never true divinity. Deity is not an attribute that comes and goes. It is or it is not. If lost and then regained, it's contingent. And if contingent, then it's not true divinity. Are you with me here? Anything less than this understanding, than affirming this basic truth of our faith, leads to every form of heresy. If divinity can be gained, then created man can possibly attain it. And there are people that teach that today. The Bible clearly, clearly, clearly rejects this idea. So if divinity can be laid aside, it is not divinity. R.C. Sproul said if God laid aside one of its attributes, the immutable, of course immutable means unchangeable, the immutable undergoes a mutation, the infinite suddenly stops being infinite, it would be the end of the universe. God cannot stop being God and still be God. So we can't talk properly of God laying aside his deity to take humanity upon himself. So if Jesus laid aside divinity... That would be proof that he never had true divinity. What does Hebrews tell us? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does it say in Malachi where God is quoted by Malachi? I, the Lord, do not change. So the quotes we just read from this well-known teacher reveal him to be a false teacher because it's a de facto denial of the deity of Christ. You still with me? Your thinker's still warmed up? So, what does Philippians 2 7 imply that Jesus did empty himself of? Well, the answer is clearly not his divinity, which is eternal and cannot be compromised. What Jesus laid aside were his divine prerogatives or his rights. Paul's point was about Christ's humility. The context of Philippians chapter 2 makes it very clear that what he emptied himself of was not his deity, not his divine attributes, but his prerogatives, his glory, and his privileges. He willingly cloaked his glory under the veil of this human nature that he took upon himself. It's not that the divine nature stops being divine in order to become human. In the transfiguration, for example, in Matthew 17, we see the invisible divine nature break through and become visible, and Jesus is transfigured Before the eyes of his disciples, the true doctrine of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that in the incarnation he took upon himself humanity, not that he laid aside deity. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is fully human and fully God. Did you count how many times I've said that this morning? I haven't, but maybe you have. It's interesting that this teacher I quoted a few moments ago claims that the Holy Spirit has led him, quote, off the map. I think he's right there. I think he's right there. I think he's off the map. Now, our map as believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is this. This is our map, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. The Holy Spirit does not lead people off the map that he has given us once and for all. This is our map. So, as we consider this passage, it's important as we prepare to close once again to consider the entire context of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The key point in this emptying of himself that Paul was emphasizing about Jesus was servanthood, it was humility. This was an admonition for the church at Philippi and for us as believers 2,000 years later to be like Jesus in his humble laying aside of his privileges. This was an encouragement to us to not cling to what we think are our rights. How many times do we think or say, well, that's not fair because we think our rights are being violated? Though Paul assumes the understanding of the early church in this passage, and thus, because of this assumption, he references some key theological themes about Christ's nature. His pre existence. Paul's point is that if Jesus, who was in fact God the Son, who did in fact live in a glorified existence prior to the incarnation, if this Jesus can stoop to let go of all of that and live the humble existence of his creatures rather than the right he had to live as our Creator with all of the accompanying glory, all of the accompanying privileges, we then can, in our less glorious, our less privileged existence, certainly let go of our pride, certainly let go of our rights, our perceived privileges, and we can have the same attitude in ourselves that Jesus had. That's a summary of what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 2 here. This is truly the spirit of Christmas. This is the spirit of Christmas. This is truly the wonder of the incarnation. This is the reality of the word. God the Son made flesh who lived among us and humbled himself further by subjecting himself through his own choice by condescending to a slave's death. He emptied himself. That's what that means. Have this attitude in yourself, Paul tells us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would work in us the attitude that Paul encourages us to have, to have this attitude in ourselves, to lay aside our rights, to lay aside our privileges, to not cling greedily to the things we think we deserve when we, in fact, deserve nothing. Father, we're grateful for the example that Jesus gave us. We're grateful for the incarnation. We're grateful, Father that in a very real way, Jesus emptied himself of privilege, he emptied himself of prerogative, and, Father, he laid aside his rights and made himself of no reputation to come and live among us and to love us and to die for us. We're grateful for these truths that we can remember and celebrate during this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.